Today we continue our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Mount called King and Kingdom. Um, over the last several months, we have been watching Jesus preach the best sermon ever preached. Um, probably an all-day sermon, and we're getting kind of cliff notes versions of it um, through several of the Gospels. But Jesus is speaking directly to his people. A large multitude is there, and yet amongst that multitude is a remnant of people who have been saved. He names them his disciples. And he is laying out, I would suggest to you, a, a constitution for his kingdom. And that that constitution trumps even our American constitution. That there is, for us that are believers, a people amongst a people. That there is, even in Bowling Green, Kentucky, a city within the city. That as believers, that you and I should live very differently than even what our world, or maybe what even our nation, suggests that we do and how we should listen. This news would have been earth-shattering to those early listeners. In this portion, Jesus explained to us the true meaning of God's law. If you remember a few weeks ago, we covered Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And in that, Jesus states, I've not come to what? To abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. Every part of the scripture, Jesus says, points to him. The majority of Jesus' audience on the side of that beautiful mountain that day would have been of, of deep Jewish tradition and belief. And they are hearing these words from Jesus. They believe that approval from God came through external activity and yet inappropriately would use the Old Testament even to justify these beliefs. We're going to learn that Jesus is not trying to destroy the law of Moses. No, Jesus is trying to show them what it ultimately means. He argues not against the law, but he argues against their interpretation of the law. Look with me at our last sentence that we covered last week. In verse 20 of chapter 5, it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, that must have just confused, startled, or maybe even caused rage in the scribes and Pharisees and many of the listeners that day. See, the, the scribes and Pharisees, they were the standard of Judaism. They seemingly had it all together. They were what other people would ascribe to be like. However, Jesus says that you must be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the question this morning is, how, how can that be? How can it be that Jesus is saying your righteousness must exceed those of which, from our view, are extremely righteous? I mean, they are really good at being good. See, this is devastating news for those of us who, who want to trust in our own righteousness, isn't it? See, religious people, like them and like us, 
um, still believe that there is some good inside of us that will allow us and help us to get God's approval through moral outward activity. Let's face it, any of you at night have maybe kind of go through an evaluation of your day. And in that evaluation of your day, you think, on the scale of like zero is like no sin, so that's like Jesus, and 10 is like you're the worst person on the planet, that you kind of sit back and you kind of evaluate in your nightly prayer time or just while you're sitting there and you go, I was pretty good today. You know, I was, I was probably a five, six, a seven, that's God's number, right? I'm definitely not a six, because that's the devil's number, right? And, and we kind of sit and we kind of go, man, I was, I was pretty good today. We sit back and we think about the decisions that we make and, and how we respond and compare ourselves, especially to people around us. Like, I wasn't as bad as that guy. I wasn't as bad as that girl. I definitely was better than my wife today. She had definitely a six kind of day. I was more like a five, right? We have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to com compare ourselves to other folks. And see, we, we like to make each other the standard, the standard of righteousness, we like to do that. Um, not too long ago, um, I had a person come and ask me something that was extremely very, very, very personal um, about how I made a decision um, in a certain situation because they were about to make, they were in a, a similar situation and they wanted to know what I did. And I, I got this feeling after we had this discussion um, that they were about to make the decision for them simply based on how I made that decision. See, I became their standard of righteousness. Because now as I've evaluated my decision when I made it back then, I was sinning. But because I'm Pastor Eric... They didn't ask me what the Bible said. They wanted to know, how did I come to that decision? And then, I, I'm pretty sure that these people were going to make their decision exactly like I did, but I was sinning, right? So they, they began to justify. We, we like to do that. Like, I'm your standard of righteousness. Pastor Justin's your standard of righteousness. Billy Graham's your standard of righteousness. Um, you know, Mother Teresa is your standard of righteousness. Your mama, your granny, that's got the family Bible with Jesus' picture on the front of it. It's got your family tree laid out on the inside of it. That is your standard of righteousness, and yet, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel reminds us that we are not each other's standard of, God, uh, of righteousness. That only Jesus is that standard. I remember as a new Christian, I'm um, often wondering, I wonder, Richard Carwell was his name, he was my discipler, I wonder what Richard would think if he was to walk in on me right now. Instead of saying, I wonder what Jesus would think of me right now. And then I, as I grew in my faith, I began to realize that Jesus was there in that room with me. 
Because Jesus is all. He is our standard of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is that standard, not each other. Um, Yet we often find ourselves comparing, justifying, standardizing our lives in comparison, good or bad, to others. Jesus is revealing to these people, and he is revealing us to this morning, that his demand for righteousness is far more exceeding, far more reaching, far higher than we could even imagine. We need to be reminded that Jesus is demanding radical righteousness, not simply external actions, um, but Jesus, as we've been saying over the last several weeks, is after the motive of our hearts and our minds and our very will. When no one else is there, Jesus is there. He's in your thoughts, he's in your minds, he's in your emotions, he is in your intellect. God is after our integrity, and he wants it to reflect his standard of righteousness, that is Jesus. So Jesus, in verses 17 through 20, looks at the broad scope of the law. Remember, the next few paragraphs, though, and the next few Sundays for us, Jesus is going to take this broad idea of the law and get very specific to it, looking particularly at several of the, the, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, and fleshing that out, how he fulfills that, and his calling for us as well. He will say over the next several weeks in several different ways, you have heard it said. Specifically this week, we read in verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. This is found in in Exodus chapter 20 verse 13. This is the sixth commandment on the list that Jesus begins again to get very practical over the next several weeks and how the gospel plays out and how Jesus plays out. Now I want you to understand this. That passage you um, shall not murder, or King James, thou shalt not murder, in that the law and even Jesus this morning is not saying there is never a time to kill a person. Some of you are like, amen. I'm glad we got justification now. That is not what that means. Though it should be very, very rare and, and under a very specific and particular circumstances, I hope that you and I are never put in a position where we have to make that call. Jesus is addressing homicide, murder. And you know what? Throughout Christendom, there has been kind of uh, believers, and there have been a lot of debates over this idea and tension between war and what we call just war, things like the death penalty, and also being a pacifist. I would suggest to you this morning that the gospel is neither hyper of any of those perspectives. God is not full on board with every war that takes place. And yet, there is seemingly time, whether that's the death penalty or war, where it is completely justified by him. And yet, on the flip side of that, Jesus is not a pacifist. You'll be hard-pressed to see that in Scripture, especially to be hyper-pacifist. I think the gospel tension that you and I need to learn to live in is we don't need to be war-hungry, and we don't need to be passive. That there are times when fight must take place, and there are times when we must step back. Now, as Americans, every war we've ever been in is just war, right? 
wrong. Wrong. It can't be. Just because we're Americans and we get in a fight doesn't mean that it's always just or that God is honored by those things. Remember the Jews in, in, in the Old Testament really knew the laws. You shall not murder is the sixth commandment in the big Ten. The scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis had concluded, though, that this commandment, thou shalt not kill, was strictly in regards to murder. Meaning, if they had never murdered someone, they had kept this law. They made this law very, very narrow. So in, in expression of that, you can beat somebody to death as long as you don't kill them. You've done well. You have kept the commandment. Some of you guys are like, I like these Pharisees. You can beat someone to their last breath. And as long as you don't kill them, you are right and justified in your actions. And so Jesus steps up to, to disagree mightily with this interpretation. God has placed in all human beings a sense that murder or homicide, the killing of a purpose, a person on purpose, is wrong. Did you know serial killers who have killed mass numbers of people, if they really love their mom and you kill their mom, they get ticked? Don't they? Or if they really love something out there and you take that from them, even if they kill a bunch of people, if you kill someone that a serial killer loves, they think it's wrong. That's not a person you want to tick off, just to let you know. All right? Um, but, but, but in every person, believer and non-believer, there is a sense somewhere in us that, that murder, a purposeful homicide, is wrong. But see, Jesus' standard of righteousness, the true meaning of the sixth commandment, is, is a very broader meaning than this. Listen to what he says in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell. Anger. Insulting. Jesus says that thou shalt not murder. You have heard it said, do not kill. I want you to know the true meaning of that is, is not just the taking of a life, but that it is anger, insult toward another individual is murder. It is punishable by the exact same thing. But let's, let's clear up something this morning. Let me ask you a question. Is God angry? Yes. God is angry. What? We have a really difficult term when we start talking about being angry as Christians, don't we? Somebody say, are you angry? And if you're a Christian, you go, well, I I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. I'm upset. My feelings are hurt. Right? I'm mad, but I'm not angry, right? And you get louder and louder, louder. Laura, sometimes we've been in arguments a long time ago. It was always her fault. And she would say to me, she would say, stop yelling. And I'd be like, I'm not yelling. She'd be like, stop yelling. I'd be like, I'm not yelling. 
Stop yelling. I'm not yelling. Are you mad? Oh, I'm not mad. I'm frustrated. I'm a Christian. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our responsibility to have a view of God that is a view of him from Scripture. Not one that you have made up in your minds. Not one that I've made up in my minds. Over and over, the Bible talks about God's anger and how it burns heart. Exodus chapter 32, verse 7 through 10. Jeremiah talks about this in chapter 30, verses 23 through 27. Revelation talks about it in 6, chapter 12 um, through 17. Yet, though our God is slow to anger... Anger in and of itself, if it has a correct and righteous purpose, is God-honoring and a character of the God that you and I are here to serve this morning. J.I. Packer, in a great book, if you've not read it, Knowing God, says this, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, it's, it's self-indulgent, irritable, morally um, uh, a thing that, that human anger is, is so often is. It is instead a right and a necessary action to objective moral evil. Anger is an attribute of the God that you and I serve. When goodness is threatened, God gets angry. If you truly love something, you will be angry. If you do not love something you will never be angry. Did you know that a fruit of love is anger? If you love your child and somebody punches them in the face, do you get angry at that? Yes, why? You love your kid. God is, is in his essence of, of everything that is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Did you know that he is loving and God is gracious, and God is merciful, and God is just. But did you know that you and I serve, for those of us that are Christians, we serve a God that is simultaneously also angry. Now, the Bible tells us that he is slow to get there. Can we get an amen to that? Like, he's got a long fuse. The idea of long-suffering um, and being slow to anger actually is the picture of a person who has a long nose. God has a... Long nose and a white beard, all right? That's not in the Bible. So we see this, though, but, but when is the last time in your worship, in your prayers, you say, Lord Jesus, I, you know, we all get in these habits. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day that you have given us. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for your anger. When's the last time you've done that? When's the last time you lifted your hands in worship and praising God for his anger? And yet, by the end of this, hopefully I'll show you why that's so important. Righteous anger. That's the key word. Righteous anger. And then you have to say, well, people, in the Old Testament, God was wrathful. God was angry. God did these things. In the New Testament, we don't see that. Do you know Jesus? I think we have a really poor view, again, of the biblical picture of Jesus. If we search the whole scripture, we will also quickly notice that Jesus is not opposing all anger. He is fully supporting righteous anger. Remember the whole scene where, where Jesus stows up to the temple? 
and they've made it into Walmart in the court of the Gentiles, and all the Gentiles are struggling. They're having to fight through all the goats and the animals and the trinkets and the Jesus or the, I don't know, Jeremiah mugs and Psalm 23 t-shirts that are being sold there in the Gentile courts. It was forcing the Gentiles not to be able to get into where they were supposed to be worshiping. They had taken the place where only the Gentiles could come and worship the Jewish God, and they had made it into a market. And what does the Bible tell us? Jesus makes a whip. They're probably talking. He's just like, what does he do? He turns over tables. I think we get this kind of passive, kind of, you know, smiling Jesus that he walks into the temple that day and he's like, there's that, there's that, you take that, you take that. That's not the God of the Bible. That is not Jesus. All right, when, when, when Jesus um, gets angry at, at those who become upset with him for healing on the Sabbath, Jesus gets angry again and calls the Pharisees, you blind fools. Later on, he will tell them, what, you brood of vipers, you're twice the sons of hell. You make them twice the sons. You think he's like, you know, you're a brood of vipers. You make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Hmm. Have a nice day. I mean, this is not the picture of Jesus. Have you read the end? Have you read the book of Revelation? Jesus will come back. In Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back to get his bride, listen to the way that our Jesus is coming. It says that he judges and makes war, that his eyes are flames of fire, that he's wearing a bunch of crowns on his head, that his robe is dipped in blood, and that from his mouth comes a sharp sword to, 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 to come against the nations. He himself treads, this is from Revelation 19, he himself treads the winepress of the, the fierceness and wrath of God. This is Jesus. Now, is he slow to get there? Yes. Yes. Is it right when he does it? Yes. It is holy. It is perfect. Brothers and sisters, there's a time for us as believers in Jesus to be angry. Again, anger is a fruit of love. Did, did you know that as a believer on certain issues, if we are not angry, then our lack of anger is a sin. That we're sinning if we're not ticked off. That this and this is happening, and that this is happening, or that this is happening. Having righteous anger means that we are angry at the things that God is angry at. This is a struggle for us. And when we don't do this, and I know it sounds crazy, it's sinful. When we can rejoice and, and be passive at thousands of babies being aborted every day, that's a gospel issue, folks. We should be angry at that. And our anger should lead to action. When we hear, brothers and sisters in Christ, being racist, that's a gospel issue. God is for the nations. White, black, Hispanic, 
Okay, all of those things, refugees, it doesn't matter where they've come from. The God has called you to a greater constitution. It is the constitution of his gospel. It constitutes every right that we've been given here as Americans because sometimes probably we shouldn't even have those rights. So what he says, there's a city within a city. There is a people within a people. And we're those people. If you're a child of God, if you're a brother and sister in Christ, then we are those people people we live inside of that tension don't we because let's face it most of us when we get angry we're not talking about righteous anger we're just talking about being angry it's not godly anger it's not righteous i mean did you wake up hearing you know they they found uh syrian in, in i think in syria this week another mass grave where isis has killed a bunch of christians Man, there, there should be a, a sense within us of, of righteous anger. Now, I don't necessarily mean that, that we should go and bomb them. That's where the tension between just war and walking as Jesus walked, that's where it's really in- interesting to live in that tension. We need to pray for them. We need to pray against the evil one. We need to pray against sin, Satan, and death. And we need to speak godliness into our brothers and sisters we need to to support brothers and sisters but most of us kind of live in this tension of of okay god you're here i'm hearing you pastor eric i'm here from the gospel today that there is a right time to have righteous anger but when i compare and look at my life even this past week i've been angry a few times and and if i'm really honest it was right to me but that doesn't mean that it was right to God. Isn't this the picture that we see in Moses? Brother Moses lived in this tension. We have moments in Moses' life that we get to peer in where brother just got ticked. You do not want to be around Moses when brother got ticked. He will kill you. He'll kill you. Moses, we get ticked in leadership. Some of you that are in leadership, this is the struggle. He would get ticked in leadership, but it would really be about him and his righteousness and what he wanted. And how did that play out for the Israelites? It never played out well. However, ladies and gentlemen, within God's righteousness, there were moments in time where we have never seen a pastor get as upset and God be pleased, probably clapping his hands at Moses as he comes down off the mountain to find God's people having all sorts of sexual immorality. They're worshiping a golden calf and brother is filled with anger, righteous anger from God, insomuch that God joins in the chorus, opens up the land, and swallows a bunch of the people. Brother makes them chop up the, the calf, right? Pulverize it. Say, oh, you want to worship that? Make it into powder. Pour it into your water and drink it up. And God was cool with that. Welcome to mission. (laughs) Right? In leadership, that's really tough. I want you to know, as a pastor, me and Pastor Justin, we constantly walk in that tension. Because there are sometimes you make us angry. As your leaders, you make us angry. Now, some of that is sin. 
on our part. But there are other times where it is righteous anger. But we don't know how to communicate that in 2016, right? Because if you want to keep your church, you want to keep everybody happy, you know, we got to go back to, there's that. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. We live in that tension. You who supervise people, man, you can live in that tension of, of getting angry over personal preference, but then also ultimately doing what is right. Man, I, I've got a friend, and this brother, he goes from zero to a hundred like that. How's your day? It's great. What about tomorrow? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, he just goes ballistic. Like, he is not long-suffering. He's not slow to anger. He's not righteous in his anger. He just explodes. Man, how many of us have ever said or thought, in comparing yourself or evaluating your goodness, have ever said this? I mean, I'm a, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody. Anybody ever said that? You know, pretty good. I've never killed anyone. I've never murdered anybody. That is like our standard, isn't it? Because of the fall, we tend to be in delusion about ourselves and see the faults in others as greater than our own. We, we have the tendency to categorize people, don't we? Um, these people are killers. These people are murderers. These people are abusers. These people are terrorists. And, and these people are demonic Satanists full of pure evil. And when we compare ourselves to those people, our standard of righteousness, we go, I'm awesome. Call me Jesus Jr., right? I'm good. And yet, you think, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not evil. I'm good. God should let me in because compared to those people, I'm really, really, really good. You know what the word terrorism means? It means the use of violence and threats to intimidate or coerce. A terrorist is a person who terrorizes or frightens other people. Have you ever been a terrorist? Have you ever used intimidation wrongly to cause fear in an individual to make them do what you want them to do? If you're a parent, it's that look right there. I get it from my dad. I'm sorry, Daddy. Now, is that extreme? How it's extremely poured out is, yes, strapping bombs to yourself, running to a place where there are lots of, of innocent people and killing them. But I want you to understand, from the biblical perspective... Jesus dismantles our delusion. Jesus has two categories, saint or sinner. Saint or sinner. This room right now is either you're, you're a saint or you're a sinner. You're not a eh, in between. I'm kind of a believer. No, you're either saved by the grace and mercy of God, and he has made you a saint, a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, or you are lost and undone. You are a sinner. There is no in-between kind of saved people in the world. He says this in this passage, but I say to you that everyone who is angry 
Have you ever been angry? And I'm not talking about righteous anger now. Have you ever insulted someone? The term here, let's learn some Greek this morning. This is the easy one that you can learn. It's the word raka. We're going to go Pentecostal this morning. You're going to repeat raka. Now you know Greek, so you can tell people. They'll think you're smart. Raka is the term that is used here. It means full, empty-handed, uh, empty-headed, I'm sorry, a nitwit, a blockhead, a numbskull, a bonehead. means to call someone stupid. Maybe if it's even the modern way that our society has become complacent with the word retard. See, I never understood the depths of that until I clinically have a son who is mentally retarded. That is the correct term analogy. But in our society, whenever you ever heard people use it inappropriately, that's just retarded. Or you're just being a retard. Raka. You're questioning someone's mental capacity. You are, are, are insulting them to the level of being nothing, that you are calling them a nobody. When we um, use the, of these terms, whether spoken or unspoken, devalues the state of a person. It makes them worthless, even if that is in your own eyes. Did you know that it is possible to cuss someone out without ever using cuss words? Did you know that it's possible to, to, to curse someone out without even speaking a word? That's usually how it's done. You stupid idiot. You nincompoop. Whatever that means. Right? You say things under your breath? Yes, boss. Yes, I'll get right on that. You idiot. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not just the bathroom words, as my mom calls them. But intellectually, using big words to destroy people even if it's only here. That's what Jesus is revealing to these people. Name-calling. Man, that's tough. It's like old preacher used to say, it just got revival quiet in here. Uh-huh. Isn't that true? I mean, it's just like, Guilty. And what does Jesus do? He gives a warning for being angry and insulting. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Notice that... that Jesus is not saying that being angry would eventually lead everyone to kill someone. But what he is saying is that, that murder is one of the fruits of anger, that they're in the same groove. If you're driving on the freeway, 
My friends from Phoenix are with me here today. They've flown the furthest to get here to worship with us. If you go to Phoenix, I mean, it is wall-to-wall traffic, line after line and line after line of people. And, and you've got to learn which lane are you going to stay in. And Jesus is saying, this lane right here includes anger. One of the fruits of the rootedness of anger in a person is eventually physical murder. They're all heading toward the same destination, and that destination is judgment, is hell, Gehenna. You know what Gehenna is? It was the dump outside of Jerusalem. It's often referenced inside of, of, of the New Testament because it was a place where you would throw animal carcasses. It's where you put, um, you know, fecal matter, all those things from your houses. It's where you'd put scraps of food. There were always dogs gnashing their teeth. It was a picture of hell, but it was a real place. And Jesus is saying it's believed that they always had a smoke, a fire going there, so it's always smoldering. And so that's the biblical image that we have of hell. And Jesus is saying, man, if, you, if you're angry so, towards someone and it's not righteous, if you insult another person, if you call them stupid, an idiot, if you think you're better than them and, or even intellectually better than them, jerk, Jesus is saying that the punishment for that is the same as murder. It is willing, or it is hell-bent. Murder is, is anger and insult played out to its fullest with a fatal blow. The ultimate relational divorce is a physical act of murder. It cannot be reversed. Yet Jesus' statement this morning, let's face it, is extremely extreme. Jesus says that not because you haven't physically killed someone doesn't mean that you're not a murderer. The name caller. When you go to a school playground, you're just watching murderers. You go to an office full of adults. Murderers. This is the depth. When we scale back the layers... When we look through all the layers of paint there, we finally get to the core of what Jesus is saying here. He says murder and anger, insult, these sorts of name-calling, being rude toward people, um, being condescending toward people, and all of these things, they are equal heading toward the same payment, and that is hell. When we say or think horrific statements toward another person, it is murder by a thousand verbal and nonverbal paper cuts. It is a tiny act of murder. Family, I, I know that whenever you hear these sort of radical truths, it's been a tough week for me. The temptation is to once again, it is to, to justify, it is to rebel against. Maybe to say things like, well, that's, that's not what Jesus really means. Or we do this. Well, I'm, it's impossible for me to be obedient in that. So I'm just going to plead the blood of Jesus on that one. I'm not going to work toward obedience in it. I'm not going to progress in obedience in it. That's just one I'm going to have to stand before God and just plead the blood, nothing but the blood. I'm going to plead the blood on that one. I'll, I'll attend church regularly. I'll read my Bible. 
occasionally, or when I open up a fortune cookie at a Chinese restaurant who don't believe in Jesus, but it's got a Bible verse on it. I mean, you know, all of those sorts of things. I, I, I've got a devotional. I've got a license plate that says, don't drive faster than your guardian angel can fly. I mean, I'll do all those sorts of things, but that one, you know, I'm good. I'm good. We begin to give excuse, and I want you to know we all need to plead the blood but pleading the blood isn't an, an opportunity for us to give excuses for why and what we're doing and for it to be justified. This is the very thing that Jesus is speaking against, this kind of relaxed view of these things. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, that we covered the last time, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of God. This morning, brothers and sisters, may we lay down our excuses. May we lay down our complacency. May we lay down our justification to respond to it this way. This is very serious truth. When we destroy people with our words, destroy their reputation, shake their confidence by whispering criticism or always looking at the faults of people, according to Jesus, killing is not simply taking of one's life physically, but it also means attempting to destroy one's spirits. Jesus is saying that we must not think that we are safe simply because we do not have a knife in our hands. Because we may have one in our mouths. Or even in our head. What we say or think about another person is the true revealer of our hearts. Let me give you a list of maybe where you struggle like I struggle. Road rage. Mm. Right? Anybody ever get angry? Stupid idiot. Man. Right, I told you guys my story a few weeks ago. I won't repeat that. I already feel still bad. So, road rage. If anything in this last season, political beliefs. I disagree with you that. <laughs> Vote for me. How, how do you deal with those things. Man, I, confessionally, this, I, I've never been a real political guy. This season, for whatever reason, man, I've succumbed to it. So several weeks ago, I had to confess to our brothers in church, um, please don't talk to me about these things. I don't want to know who you're voting for, who you're not voting for. I don't want to see any of those things. Because it riles up within me bitterness, disappointment in people, race. Let's face it, there was a season in our country where we blamed everything on black people. Now that has a tendency to dampen. Now we're blaming it all on Mexicans. Or people from the Middle East. And we will say things that are filled with anger and insult. That's not godly. 
or let's get real practical. How about the referee who misses the call and causes your favorite team to lose? Zebra! He's wearing a... Okay. Where'd you learn how to be a referee? You're an idiot! Raka! Raka! Right now, all of this week, you're going to be cussing at people using Greek. Right? I mean, what about it? I mean, get real practical. Or you're a parent. You're at the soccer match. Your kid's terrible. But you think they're, uh, you know, what is it? Mercy? Messy? Right? Mercy means in Creole and French. Thank you. Messi is this guy's name. He's the, the best soccer player they say right now. Like, and you think your kid is them. And they make a bad call. Like, like elementary school. And you're the parent on the sideline. I coach volleyball. I have parents yell at me from the sideline. Why didn't you volunteer then? Why don't you practice with them at home? Let me throw you the ball. Right? But that, that's what we do. I mean, we're, what about that? What about the person who you're waiting to pull into a parking spot, and they know you're waiting, and then they pull in it because they're coming from the opposite direction? Or the person at the gas pump who decides to go buy all of their gra- groceries, but they left their car at the pump, and you're sitting behind them? Is that, am I the only one that that happens to? Yeah, every dude in here is like, mmm, you tell them, preacher. All right? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we see these things. Trolling on the internet just because someone puts something dumb and stupid on, or, see, I just did it. <laughs> Their statement is dumb and stupid. I don't even think that's right. See, I've just sinned before you. See how easy that is? But someone will put something on Facebook that you do not agree with, and you've got to be the troll to prove them wrong called trolling how do you speak when you're or think about your boss or the employee that got the promotion that you deserved how about the way you speak to your spouse that's serious maybe you don't even say it but you walk away I mean, every wife in here, if we're honest, you have all thought that your husband was an idiot. And you've thought it. And some of you ladies have said it. And it doesn't matter if he was. Maybe he was being. They're, they're, you know, gentlemen, when our wives are nagging us, And you may not say the word, but you walk away, and you say it. How do you speak to your kids? Sometimes there's, you should be, again, I think that there are moments, especially when it's over gospel things, that that there is a, a righteous anger even in a relationship that can be God-honoring, again, if it's over a gospel issue, even with your children, 
There are times, if it's over a gospel issue, like in our house, I do not do well with lying. Did you eat the cookie? Smear it all over her face. Mm-mm. What's that in your hand? I don't know. It was Cash's. I took it from him. I do not do well with lying. Why, though? That's a gospel issue. Okay? But, ladies and gentlemen, confessionally, there have been times where I've gotten upset at Ava and angry where it was not righteous. It was not justified. It was terroristic. I'm going to make you scared of me. Oh, you ain't scared of me? You're going to be scared of me now. Right? Have you ever looked at your kid? I mean, confessionally and thought, man, are you dumb? Man, see how easy it is? Maybe it's just me. You ever said something like, they're dead to me? Ever gotten upset with a family member who's wronged you? You've written them off? See, ladies and gentlemen, you will never stand before a human court for simply being angry and insulting. Yeah, we got a 2905-67-309 right here, and Andrew right here, he's just angry. You won't stand before court and experience that. What does Jesus tell us, though, today? You will stand before God. Even if your anger never has external showings. You know, some angriest people in the world are the most quiet. They can come across as the most peaceful of people. But in their hearts are full of anger, rage, and insult. And Jesus says... You're going to. See, we can fool each other, but we can make no mistake that we can fool Jesus. He knows. He knows our thoughts, our dirty looks, our cuss words, our slander, all indicate a murderous heart, and they all deserve hell. On Judgment Day, left to themselves, the serial killer, the suicide bomber, the murderer, murderer of one person, and the angry, insulting person all receive the same sentence. Guilty. Hell is your punishment. The book of Ephesians reminds us, again, that anger in itself is not bad if it's righteous. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So Jesus continues here in verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave the gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus continues this statement here with some very practical advice. He's looking at his disciples, and, and he realizes that there is probably unjust anger there, there's unrighteous anger there, there's insult, and all of these things should be dangerous or are dangerous and should be avoided by us as 
Christians. So he gives two illustrations here. The first one is in, at a worship experience with a brother or sister in Christ. What Jesus says here is that in, in their time, they would have went to the temple, they would have taken the animal for sacrifice, for the covering of their sins and their family's sins, and that in that moment, as they were laying the offering there for worship, that they realized that there was a brother or sister in Christ, uh, uh, for us in Christ, for the Jews, just a fellow Jew, and that there was a grievance that that person had before you. The Bible tells us there, what did they do? They left the offering immediately. They didn't listen to the sermon? They didn't listen to the praise and worship? No. In that moment, through the power of the, we know, the Holy Spirit, as it brings conviction and realization to our mind, that in that very moment, that we should go and seek reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. So if we were really being, paying attention this morning, a bunch of us should get up and leave right now. We should leave right now. And if you need to go, go. Because there's somewhere out there. Listen to what he says. If, if you're in worship gathering and you realize that there's an issue between yourself, or excuse me, um, if you're in a, at the, the worship gathering and you remember that your brother has something against you, not that you even have an issue with another person, but that you realize that there is someone out there, that, and they're a brother and sister in Christ, and they have an issue with you, what does Jesus say to go do? He says to go to them. Jesus is saying that the Christian, if you are in a worship gathering and you realize that this is taking place, don't even wait until the worship has ended. But Matthew, one of his favorite words is, is immediately, like, get up, go, and reconcile yourself to them. It doesn't matter if their anger is justified or not. doesn't matter if they deserve this. You do everything possible in your hands to reconcile this. The second illustration that Jesus gives us, which is maybe even more difficult, is that he's talking about somebody that's your enemy. That they're your enemy. That you owe them something, that they're accusing you, um, and, and that you should go and to be reconciled to them. Even to the point that this chaos between you and your enemy is eventually going to lead to a court case. And Jesus says, as you're even going, before you ever get to that moment, what you need to do is, is you need to go and you need to reconcile with your enemy so that you not kill them with your anger and your insults. That, that more than... Lifting your hands, singing some songs, more than cracking open your Bible, more than saying a prayer that one of the things that is quenching the Holy Spirit within the church the most is our lack of ability to seek reconciliation at all costs. This is not easy for you, and this is not easy for me. At the center of both of these issues, a relational problem. There's a relational divorce between the two. Jesus wants us to understand the, the urgency in taking care of these issues. Believers should be slow to anger, quick to forgive, and quick to reconcile. We give up our right to be right. It does not say that they deserve it. It does not say that they are right. But as believers in Jesus, to to seek reconciliation, we give up our rights and we give them what they do not deserve. 
John Stott says this, as soon as we are conscious of a broken relationship, we must take the initiative to mend it, to apologize for the grievance we have caused, to pay the debt we have left unpaid, to make amends. If we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, we must make every possible positive step to live in peace and to love with all of them. That means you go to them, you offer forgiveness, you, you, you say things like, I'm sorry, please forgive me. You give up your right to be right. Now, how they respond, the Bible isn't, isn't holding you to their response. He's holding you, and it holds us to our response. They may say, get out of my house. They may say, uh, you're dead to me. They may say that, but that's between them and the Lord. What is between you and the Lord is how you're responding and actively pursuing reconciliation. Are you guilty? Are we guilty? Am I guilty? Anybody feel convicted this morning? If so, there is hope in closing. Jesus, and the reason why we are able to do this, is it says there, Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus paid it all. He stayed on that cross until the debt was paid. And paid in full. If you were perfect in every way, and yet you one day insulted someone, even if it was in a childish way, you nincompoop. Did you know, according to the scripture, that that word, and using it in that manner, with that heart, is the same as murder, and you deserve to die. So when we think about Jesus hanging on the cross, we think about things like he's died for my, my, my murderous, if I've killed somebody, he's died that I was a thief, he's died that I've um, been abusive, um, he's died that I was, because I was a liar, he became sin for us. Jesus became, he absorbed the anger, the unrighteous anger. See, Jesus reconciles his enemies to God. Jesus is after what no one else sees. Jesus is so angry. God is so angry. The Holy Spirit is so angry. And this is why we can worship God even in his anger this morning, his righteous anger, that Jesus is so angry at sin in your life. He is so fierce with it. He is so filled with wrath that what did he do? He came and died. That's how angry he was. That was how mad he is in his righteousness, in his perfect anger, that he is willing to come and to give people who think they are right but they are not right to be the righteous one. The, the, the people that think that they deserve something and yet they do not deserve it. And yet what does Jesus do? He comes and he reconciles us to God. We've been saying this a lot lately. Jesus, again, is not simply after our external behavior modification. He is after our heart. We are reminded in this passage that our hope is only in Jesus. These truths, the only one who has lived perfectly was him. Jesus' radical, difficult, almost impossible statement is meant to drive us back to him. Anybody need Jesus this morning? Anybody struggling with sin this morning? 
anger, insult, rage that is unrighteous. And Jesus stands before you. He reminds us this morning in the gospel that murderers are welcome. Murderers are welcome. Those have been reconciled to God. Jesus is our reconciler. The the slander and the murderer are in need of the same reconciliation, the same Savior, the same righteousness, the same Jesus. Jesus has obeyed in every area what you and I have failed in. So this morning, may we repent of our anger. None of this makes sense without a relationship with Jesus. I get it. So may we first be reconciled to Jesus and then reconciled to others. Let me read this passage of Scripture to you and then I'm going to pray. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you calls to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is not God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, and that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And what does he do? Theology leads to application. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us now the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sinners, first be reconciled to God. Once reconciled to God, he deems you forever saint, son, daughter, prince, princess, my Child, my bride. But he is not a landing pad. That is the launch pad. To therefore go and be about reconciliation, both in our relationships, but ultimately helping people, exposing them to the gospel in hopes that God, through Jesus, through our gospel presentation, will reconcile others to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. And Lord, we are thankful for your anger this morning. That was so passionate that it could not sit upon its throne any longer. That came and redeemed your people. Has rescued us. And is coming again. 
Lord, you love us in righteous anger like a loving, true, and perfect Father. Not out of selfish ambition or conceit. Not out of flightiness or just being a bitter person. Lord, you are not those things. You lovingly discipline us and show us, Lord. We're all guilty in this room. So we come before you, God. We come before you, Jesus. We come before you, Holy Spirit, asking that you would once again help us, sanctify us. Lord, if there's a person here today that does not have a relationship with you, Jesus, may you save them. And may you encourage the believer. In Christ's name, this morning, stand with me. Let's worship him.